This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Christ in the Old Testament. Our scripture reading today is taken from the second and third chapters of the book of Genesis. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. He answered, He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate it. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, at the beginning of time, your spirit moved over the waters. So send your spirit to us now to open our hearts and minds, to receive the recreating power of your word, and to behold the glory of your son. Amen. I hope, Daniel, you are appreciating the fact that I'm taking an Old Testament text for myself today, because this man says many outrageous things from the pulpit, and being a mild-mannered Canadian, I bite my tongue again and again. 
But last week, he made the claim that I don't like preaching Old Testament texts myself, and I try to pawn them off on other people. Now, am I the kind of person who would, the week after, embark on a 40-part series on the Old Testament merely out of spite? Perhaps, but actually, it's something I've been contemplating for a long time because I love the Old Testament, as my brother Daniel also does. And I have been really looking forward, now that it's September, everyone's back, we can roll up our sleeves and really spend the next year working through, journeying through the first half of our Bibles. And really, if you have a physical Bible in front of you, you'll see it's not just the first half, but almost three quarters of the pages of your scripture is the Old Testament. And if you're only spending time in the last quarter of that Bible, you are missing out on a great deal that God wants to tell you. Now, I would guess that most of us here who came to faith in Jesus came to faith in Christ through a New Testament passage. For me, it was the Gospel of John. And we find the New Testament quite a bit more approachable than the Old, don't we? Reading through Paul's letter to the Philippians or the Gospel of Matthew, it seems a lot more immediately obvious and applicable to our lives. And then we bravely attempt to struggle through the pages of the Old Testament. In January, we open up the book of Genesis and we start slogging through, but we find those books so dark and so mysterious and so confusing, and we give up in despair because we struggle to see the relevance. But these books, too, are breathed out by the Spirit of God. And God encourages us and invites us to turn to these pages to be fed by him. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes to his mentee Timothy, he says, You know, Timothy, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. They were taught to you by your mother and your grandmother. And these Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures that Paul is talking about are the Old Testament. The New Testament did not exist in completed form. Many of the letters were not even written yet. But if you had gone, if you were able to travel back in time to a New Testament church, you would find these are all Old Testament people. They're studying the Old Testament together. They're reading the Old Testament together. They're being taught from the Old Testament together. They are worshiping God from the Old Testament. And for young Timothy... His mother and his grandmother turned him to the pages of the Old Testament to lead him to faith in Christ Jesus. These dusty old books are able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus, and they are so full of the gospel. Now, the Old Testament is massive, and if we went through at the pace it really deserves, we could spend decades working through these books, time which we simply do not have. So my hope for this series, my plan for this series, is that we're going to have one sermon for each of the 39 books of the Old Testament. We're going to be going through this at high speed, okay? So please do not stick any limbs out the window because they are liable to get ripped off. We're going to be surveying this at a very high level, but I'm hoping that these little teasers will whet your appetite and you'll think, wow, actually 2 Chronicles sounds like a really interesting book. I want to take some time and dig into that for myself And I would be very happy if that was the result of that series. But I want to sharpen our focus a little bit, because this is not just about a survey of the Old Testament or the message of these books. This is going to be a series about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. It's remarkable 
that after Jesus rose from the dead, his first activity, according to the last chapter of Luke, was him going that afternoon to find two discouraged, depressed disciples walking to Emmaus, and he caught up to them on the road, hiding his, the recognition of him from their eyes. And then he began to open up the Old Testament and talk about himself in those books. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke says, Jesus explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. And when he revealed himself to them over the breaking of bread and then vanished, the two disciples turned to each other and said, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? What a Bible study that must have been. As the miles and the hours sped by quickly, as Jesus, out of memory, walked them through the entire Old Testament and explained, all of this is pointing to me. I am the terminus of all these regulations, all these laws, all these stories, all this history. All of these prophecies are about me. And if you read the Old Testament and fail to see Jesus, you are missing out on what God has for you in these books. Jesus taught the disciples, and then the apostles taught the church, and down through the centuries, the Spirit of Christ has guided us into perceiving the glory of Jesus that shines forth from these pages. So we're not doing this series because we love the Bible or because we love the Old Testament. We're doing it because we love Jesus. And what our hearts need most of all for our own spiritual formation to fulfill what God has for our destinies is to perceive, to behold Jesus, and to grow in faith and trust and love and worship and obedience. We're beginning today with a monster, the book of Genesis, the book of Origins. Now, this is the only book in the series I plan to do this for, but because Genesis is such a huge, sprawling beast of a book that covers thousands and thousands of years, We're going to split this into a part A and a part B. We're going to talk today about Genesis chapters 1 to 11, and then next week, Genesis 12 to 50, the patriarchs. These first 11 chapters of Genesis, one scholar describes as the Old Testament of the Old Testament. The Old Testament of the Old Testament, because even in the time of Moses and Israel, this was ancient, ancient history that was being described. We can also call this the Old Testament of the Old Testament because this is the foundation of the Old Testament and the whole scriptures about what Israel believed about themselves, what they believed about God, what they believed about the rest of the world. And these first 11 chapters of Genesis answer basic foundational questions, such as what is ultimate reality? Where did everything come from? What does it mean to be a human being? And what is our purpose in this world? And what is wrong with the world? And what kind of hope do we have that it's going to be put right? These are basic questions that every human culture and every human religion asks and attempts to answer. And here in the inspired word of God, he reveals to us the true answers to these questions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This stately opening sentence begins the majestic poem in Genesis chapter 1 that describes the origins of the universe. And over the course of six days, God simply speaks creation into existence. God says, let there be light, and there is light. 
And God takes the formless, shapeless, empty void that he has made, and he fills it, and he organizes it, and he populates it. He puts the sun and the moon and the stars in the sky. He separates the land from the waters, and he covers it with vegetation. He fills the sea with fish and the sky with birds and the land with living creatures. And finally, on the sixth day of creation, as the crown of his artistry, God creates human beings. He blesses them, and then God stands back, as it were, from his creation, and he surveys it all, and he declares, this is good. This is very good. And then God rests on the seventh day. This is not the rest of exhaustion, like some manual labor. This is the satisfaction of an artist who's taking pleasure in what he has made. What does this teach us about God? You know, the book of Genesis, in many ways, is structured as a very deliberate contrast to the pagan mythologies that surrounded Israel in the ancient Near East. In the elaborate story the Babylonians told, for example, about how the world came to be, they said, you know, Long, long ago, before any of us were around, there was a gigantic war among the gods. All the children of the gods began to fight. And finally, the god Marduk overcame the dragon sea goddess Tiamat. He killed her, and then he split the goddess's body in half to make the sky and the earth. And then the gods said, you know what, we're tired of doing all this work, all these chores that we have to do to take care of ourselves. It's very exhausting. It would be quite nice to have some slaves to do the hard labor for us. So they decided to create human beings, and they sacrificed one of the gods, Kingu, and they took his blood, and they mixed it with some dirt, and then they formed these human beings who were there merely as slaves to tend to the needs of the gods. The story of Genesis could not be in starker contrast to the myth of the Babylonians. First of all, what we have here is one God, not a pantheon of gods, one single supreme God. In the story of Genesis, there is no violence, there's no conflict, there's no struggle. God speaks, and without any resistance, the world springs into existence. We find in this story, God doesn't create the world out of any need, out of any lack, something that he's missing. God seems to be creating out of sheer joy. Just because he freely decides to create and populate a whole universe of wonders. And then he sits back to rejoice in the work of his hands. And then, of course, in Genesis, although human beings are created out of the ground... They're not there to be slaves, to do chores for God. We are made as kings. And every human being has dignity, value, and worth before God. In Genesis chapter 1, God determines, let's make man in our own image. And God creates man, male and female, in his own image and likeness. And if the world is a kind of cosmic temple, which is how Genesis describes it, then human beings are the icons of God in the very center, in the very holy of holies in that temple. We are the images of God. We are the idols, as it were, and we bear the presence of God to the rest of creation. In fact, God calls human beings to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. We're given dominion and authority over the rest of God's creation. 
not as these brutal authoritarian tyrants who are there to rape and destroy and pillage, but were meant to be benevolent rulers who were called as sort of gardeners to draw out of God's creation what is latent within it. All the possibilities that God has buried in the ground, we human beings with all of our ingenuity and curiosity and artistry and technology are meant to build a civilization and fill the earth and bring forth all of God's creation to its full flourishing. Image bearers of God, kings and priests in God's world, people created for fellowship with God, designed to walk with him in the garden. What a high calling we human beings have. And then in Genesis 2, which Anne read for us, we find this second complementary account of the creation of human beings. And we find there that human beings are actually a strange sort of amphibious creature because we're half angel but half animal. In Genesis chapter 2, human beings are formed out of the dirt, out of the mud, which has been sculpted by the hands of the divine potter, and he breathes his breath into our nostrils. And though we have this high destiny and calling, human beings are very much rooted into the ground below us. In fact, the name of the first human being, Adam, is a kind of pun on the Hebrew word Adama, which means the ground. We could translate his name as the earthling. We are all earthlings. And Richard Reno writes that human beings are what angels and demons could never be, a hybrid of body and spirit that participates in all aspects of the created order. And through us, God can reach into every corner of his creation. Neither pure spirit nor mere body, he writes, we are at the crossroads of reality. And the future of the cosmos is in the hands of whichever army controls this strategic point. And therefore, human beings quickly attract the attention of a malevolent figure who emerges out of the shadows, a talking serpent. And this is not just an unusually articulate reptile. This is the ancient serpent, a fallen angel. The rest of the scripture will clarify for us. One of the highest supernatural beings created by God, but refused to serve God and led a rebellion of angels against him which of course was a doomed effort. How could you possibly fight against a God who could just create the universe with a word of his mouth? But in his malice, this angel, whom we've come to know as Satan or the devil, longs to wreck the beauty of God's creation. And he plans an attack on this key crossroads, the very first human beings. Not an all-out frontal assault, of course. This is an operation of deception and seduction. You know, God had put the first human beings, Adam and Eve, in the garden, a place of contentment and delight. These were the absolutely optimum conditions for obedience. Never ever would it be easier to make the choice to love and obey God than in the perfect conditions of the garden. And among the wonders of this garden were two unusual trees. God placed in there the tree of life. Adam and Eve never ate from this tree, but the tree of life being in the garden suggests that the promise of immortality was within human reach. 
that God's destiny for human beings was that, that we would participate in everlasting life. That's what God wanted human beings to grow up into. They never ate from that tree because there was a second tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree of forbidden knowledge, which stood as a kind of test, the simplest possible test. How will human beings use their awesome gift of freedom and moral choice? We are kings. We have dignity. We're created in the image of God. How are we going to use that freedom that the animals do not have? And then we have this tragic story of temptation and devastating fall, which is not just a matter of primeval history. It's something that you and I live out every single day. Here's the evil one whispering in the woman's ear that God is, God is holding out on you. God makes all these claims. He has all these promises, but he doesn't really want the best for you. There's something secret that God is holding out from you. And if you really want to experience freedom, if you really want to be all you could possibly be, then you need to turn away from the light toward the darkness. You need to sever yourself back from God who's holding you back with all of his restrictions. And Satan turns all the blessings that Adam and Eve should have been so thankful for into a matter for discontent and grumbling. And don't we hear that same whisper in our ears every single day? We find it so hard to believe that God really loves us, that his service is perfect freedom, that somehow we ought to be going on the way of self-gratification by rebelling against God. And first Eve and then Adam make the terrible choice to reach out and take this fruit. And when they bite into it, immediately their innocence is lost and their wonderful, free, open intimacy with their creator is destroyed. And now they have these terrible new experiences. Shame, nakedness, vulnerability, guilt, and they find themselves wanting to hide from God. And Adam and Eve, who are brought together in this wonderful gift of intimacy and partnership by God, now begin to turn against each other, blaming the other, suggesting punishment should fall on their spouse. And then in the garden, God issues his judgment over the guilty pair. And Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden outside this place of beauty and safety into a world that is not only wild, but now it's ruined and cursed. A place of pain and death and confusion. It's this wandering east of Eden that all human beings know. And we find in ourselves this half-remembered longing for something greater and something better that God has for us. And we try to grope our way back to Eden or recreate paradise ourselves, And we always find the way blocked by these angels with their flaming swords. It all started so simply, eating a piece of fruit from a forbidden tree. But from this misuse of free will writes St. Augustine in City of God, from this misuse of free will, there started a chain of disasters. Adam and Eve have a son in whom they put so much hope, and then a second son, Cain and Abel. 
And then Cain murders his brother in a fit of envy, and the first human blood soaks into the ground. Things quickly become much darker. And Cain is angry and defiant, and he asks God, Am I my brother's keeper? And God sends him into exile, and Cain goes and he builds the first city. He's the one who founds human civilization. And later it's going to be Cain's descendant Lamech, who boasts of being even more violent and vengeful than his ancestor. And as you read those opening chapters in Genesis, you read the genealogies and the stories of the first human beings in those faraway shadowy ages, you find that human culture is becoming more and more depraved as it pursues a romance with death. And very rarely there is a person, a righteous man like Enoch, who walks faithfully with God and is taken up into heaven. But he is far and away the exception. Things become so bad, according to Genesis chapter 6, that God surveys all he's made. He observes the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he sees that everything that human beings thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. The rot has spread and human beings are now decayed. And God decides, his heart full of pain, to wipe the world clean and start over. And he floods the world with waters from below. And he saves only Noah and his family as a kind of second Adam with enough animals to repopulate a cleansed earth. It's a moment, but only a moment, of hope for humanity because we discover as we read on that after civilization is rebooted and it's, it fires up again, we find human evil hasn't vanished. Even God wasn't able to drown it out in the flood because all human hearts are bent and twisted. Not just the evil descendants of Cain, but even the children of godly Noah to go out to populate the earth and create the nations of the world. And as the story of the failed Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 demonstrates, this man-built sacred mountain, humanity is much more interested in creating a name for themselves and pursuing the serpent's demonic project of self-deification, turning ourselves into God, rather than seeking the Creator with all of our hearts. These first 11 chapters of Genesis are difficult chapters. But they describe the world that we all live in, a world of unimaginable beauty and goodness, also a world of brokenness, of pain and sin. We live among human beings who are capable of incredible kindness, we are also all capable of horrifying evil. And so we have this confused, split experience of the goodness of God's creation and of human beings, but also the brokenness of what it means to be fallen. And we know this in our own lives. Not just the experience of being damaged, and we are all damaged people in different ways but also the regret of having damaged others. That though our own sin might not seem terrible and grandiose, in our small, petty ways, we cause misery in this world and perpetuate the sin of Adam and Eve. 
We've gathered here today because we long to return to paradise and to walk with God again. We do long for his presence. We're also here today in sorrow, confessing this week again, we listened to the voice of the serpent. We believed his suggestions that God does not love us, that God does not have good for us, and we reached out to take what God has forbidden us and brought death again into our own lives. And we confess, in so many ways, we love darkness rather than the light, and we choose death over life. That's not all Genesis teaches, thank God. Because these chapters also tell us that God has not abandoned his creation. And there is no disaster and no rebellion that will cause God to give up on the human beings that he loves so much. As St. Athanasius says, it would not have been fitting for God to have made human beings in his image and then to abandon us. God will not allow the evil one to have the final word and to take the victory. And you'll notice in the judgment scene in Genesis chapter 3 that although God curses the serpent and God declares the ground is cursed, he does not curse Adam and Eve. Human beings are not cursed. And amazingly, even in this terrible scene of guilt and judgment, and Adam and Eve could not imagine what they had unleashed into the world, even in that terrible scene of guilt and shame and judgment, we find incredibly the first revelation of the gospel in Scripture. That one day, the seed of the woman is going to arise, and he is going to crush the head of the serpent forever. Isn't that amazing? That God will not leave humanity in despair even for one moment. The illicit fruit has hardly begun digesting in their stomachs, and God is showing up promising salvation is coming. Judgment and curse and pain and death will not be forever. The injury has hardly appeared before God's remedy is at hand. And it is a powerful act of total free grace on God's part, offered to humanity at its lowest moments when they deserve nothing but the death that God has threatened. Yes, terrible forces have been unleashed upon the world. And we do see so much evil in this world around us. And yes, there are going to be many twists and turns in the world's story yet. But now, a small flame of hope is burning. It's as though the music of the world's song, which was so joyful in creation, the music has now become dark and ominous and threatening. But if you listen carefully, in the opening bars of this new, dark, somber movement, you can discern a faint counter-melody. There are other notes behind these dark notes, a note of grace, a whisper of God's love. 
a quiet theme that is going to be woven into the symphony and will reappear again and again, more frequently and more insistently until at last, one day, all the sad notes will fade away and the healed and renewed creation is singing one joyous song of grace and love and worship. And all the world's hope is pinned on one mysterious human figure, the unnamed seed of the woman whose heel will be bitten by the serpent, but who will then crush the snake under his feet. When Cain is born, Adam and Eve seem to have assumed the conqueror will be their son, and they are terribly disappointed. And perhaps when Moses wrote these words, he was assuming the seed of the woman meant Israel. But they too would fail to defeat evil, as every human being lies helpless under the power of the evil one. And even the disciples did not understand this promise until after their master rose from the dead. Having conquered sin and death and Satan, And then they began to read the scriptures with new eyes, eyes that had been enlightened by the Holy Spirit of Jesus. And they began in their Bibles and turned to the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And with these new eyes of the Spirit, they realized this was the first of many, many glorious prophecies pointing to Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, the new Eve. The very word by which God had spoken forth all of reality, this word will become flesh. The author of creation is going to write himself into the story and fashion a body for himself out of the earth and become one of the human beings that he loves so much. To do battle at the head of humanity, against our ancient enemy, the serpent. The serpent will bite his heel. As Satan enters into Judas, inspiring him to betray Jesus and send him to the cross, where he dies in agony, Satan and his demons rejoicing that at last they had shattered and destroyed this would-be rescuer of humanity. And therefore, I imagine the joy of the woman and the disciples on Easter Sunday must have been matched below by terrible shrieking and horror and despair in the kingdom of darkness as the risen Christ dealt mankind's enemy its fatal blow. Brothers and sisters, Satan is not dead yet. He is filled with malice and fury because he knows his time is short. He has been defeated decisively. Jesus is not struggling with Satan anymore. His doom is certain. He's in his last agonies of death. And when the second Adam returns to God's earth, he is going to pick up that snake and fling him into the lake of fire, never to harm, never to hurt, and never to tempt humanity again as evil is not merely defeated, but crushed, destroyed, obliterated. 
This is our Father's world. God loves his creation. And God loves human beings. God loves all of us. And he will not allow his creation to be submerged in chaos and death. And he will never surrender his image bearers to ruin and destruction. God did not make you to be a slave to do his chores. But as one of many kings and priests in God's good and beautiful creation. And he is determined to bring us back to the garden, to a place better than the garden, the new heavens and the new earth. Our hope today is not in the power of human civilization, not in the power of human progress, not in the power of human ingenuity, not in the power of human technology. Human beings are marvelously creative, but again and again, our creativity only adds more misery and death into this world. Our hope is in the God who loved his creation so much that he gave his one and only son. Not to condemn us, not to judge us, not to curse us, but to save and heal us. And he invites us, he urges us, all of us, to put our faith in Jesus, our great redeemer, the seed of the woman, and the crusher of the serpent. Shall we pray and ask God to increase our faith, love, and obedience to his dear son? Awesome God, good creator of us all, we thank you and bless you for not only this wonderful world that we live in, but the gift of our own existence. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us for the terrible ways that we have misused our freedom, to rebel against you, to grieve your heart, to harm others, to damage ourselves. And we thank you for your profound grace that meets us again and again in our deepest moments of guilt and shame and regret with a word of promise, with the word of the gospel, with the message of Christ Jesus. Lord, he is our only hope. Sin and Satan and death are too powerful for us to overcome. And we thank you that you have overcome them in the person of your son. Holy Spirit, help us to place all of our faith in Jesus, to give him all of our love and all of our heart's obedience. In his awesome name we pray, amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.